0: All of us are on a journey of becoming, a never-ending journey in pursuit of truth and deeper union with the divine. Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing and that our journey of becoming can be both difficult and painful. Far too often, we have not been given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson. My good friend Greg Fern and I are also on this journey of becoming. We are both dedicated to inviting you into our journeys and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to take an honest look at the issues and questions so common to this shared journey that we all find ourselves on. We want to genuinely seek out what it means to follow Jesus in our ever changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe and in our pluralistic society. We have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but rather that both doubt and curiosity are two of our biggest allies. We have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And we believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith, in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right, well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm your host, Josh Patterson, and today we have a fun conversation in store with uh, for you, with you, I guess with you too, if you're listening, but it's not You know, I'm not engaging with you as much. But if you wanted to engage, you could come hang out in our Facebook group and uh, join our Patreon. I did not plan on plugging that, but look, here we go. That's just uh, what's happening this morning, uh, pre-coffee in the brain of uh, Josh Patterson. (laughs) But uh, today we are going to be having a a fun conversation about uh, suffering, basically. We're going to be asking the question, why is there suffering? And with me, I have Bethany... Solarrater, I think I got the last name correct. Oh, Bethany might have frozen.
1: Sorry, you've frozen for oh, me. So there I we have, go. With with me, I have, and then it, okay, And cool. then it stopped. So,
0: all right, <laughs> hi, I'm Bethany yeah. Solarrater. <laughs> there we go. We have Bethany Solarrater. <laughs> to be here today. Thank
1: you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks, and thanks for coming all the way from the University of Edinburgh, and for. Yeah. Uh, yeah being flexible with your schedule so we can make this happen um i i realized after i had asked you the first time and and proposed a time that uh the time zones were way different and that my request was a bit ridiculous so thanks for being gracious and offering something better
1: <laughs> <laughs> no problem yeah my 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 brain at 2 in the morning is not awesome yeah. Please <laughs> so, please to do it in the afternoon. Although I've now put you in the awkward spot of trying to do it when you've just woken up. So
0: I uh, it's all good. I, I feel like um my brain is most uh you might get more more sporadic, Josh, in the morning is what Oh, tends to we're happen.
1: enhancing the creativity factor. That's awesome. Yeah,
0: something like that. Oh, <laughs> uh, cool. Well, uh Bethany, would it if um just for people who aren't familiar with yourself and your work. Can you just uh, kind of fill us in, give us a little bit about uh, who you are and what kind of stuff you find yourself doing?
1: Great. Uh, so uh, my name is Bethany Soleretter. I'm a lecturer in science and religion here at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Uh, as you can tell, my accent is unfortunately not Scottish, wish it was, but it is Canadian. So I'm from Edmonton, which is a great place to be from because you can move to Scotland for the good weather. Uh, which not many people can claim. Um, I work on areas in the relationship between science and religion, particularly in terms of biology and geology and related disciplines. Uh, Another way that I say it is, if anything is grim and depressing, I'm probably in the middle of it. So I did my PhD on the question of animal suffering, and why a good God would allow so much suffering and death and extinction to be part of evolution if that was the way God God created, which which it seems that that is. Um, and so after working on that for a while, uh, I then turned to what I'm doing now, which is what do we do if we can't stop climate change? So given, given the moment that we're in, Uh, given the fact that climate change is no longer coming but is here and will uh, continue and will increase uh, how do we interpret theologically the suffering the change and the possibilities that come through that
0: yeah that's a man that's a big important topic and one that i uh personally uh have been doing like a lot of reading <laughs> about more recently. And uh I, I think when um I originally emailed you, uh I asked if if I don't scare you off with our first conversation, uh, that I would love to have that second conversation with you as well. Um Definitely.
1: That's, yeah. let's do
0: that. Cool. I'm I'll, I'll make a note. Don't scare her away. Wrote it down. <laughs> <laughs> oh well uh today um I wanted to talk to you about as much as the ecological thing um, is, is I mean, that's like at the front of my mind uh, these days. Uh, but this uh, other type we're going to talk about kind of can tie into that nicely. Um, but you did something really cool. You wrote a book called Why Is There Suffering? Uh, but what's unique about it is it's a pick your own adventure, like theology book, which is insane. Um, I thought that was <laughs> <laughs> such a cool idea. Uh, it reminded me of when I was uh, younger, Uh, we would get uh the Goosebumps books and uh you know read and then it would do or like, okay, which do you go through this door or this door and you turn the pages and it's always different. Um and you somehow managed to make a theology book do that. And it's awesome. Yeah. So
1: essentially, I when I was doing my PhD on animal suffering, I was reading all these books about why God allows suffering. And I absolutely Hated the experience. It was devastating. And it was devastating for a number of reasons. One, because theodicists, so theodicy is that branch of theology that deals with the problem of suffering. So theodicists would take sort of the worst examples of human depravity and, and use them in graphic details as as what they were going to to then justify and of course as you're reading these stories all you want to do is weep you don't you don't want to sort of like oh well if a then a prime then b you know you can't follow formal logic when your brain is so emotionally engaged with these stories and so i found just that contrast impossible um and then i was also just sort of frustrated that they all um not not they all but many sort of acted like this is quite a simple matter that could really be cleared up in a couple hundred pages <laughs> and i i have the answer you know let me let me just tell you the answer and in in light of some of the things that i was encountering in the world around that time uh those answers didn't help you know um and, and so I, I started to think, okay, how can we make theodicy actually helpful? Um, because in in the end, after trudging through all that literature for several years, I did manage to sort of create uh, a reason in my own mind that worked well enough um, for me for me and God to, to get along. <laughs> All right, you know, for 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 me to not be overwhelmed by existential angst on on these sorts of questions, and I thought I I I wish there was some way to help other people have that same journey without subjecting them to three years of PhD study on this problem, and and so that was where the idea came from: was how do I how do I in in an inviting way, cutting all the sort of theological jargon, cutting out the really grim stories of of horror that just can emotionally damage you in and of themselves um how do i let people sort of explore this question and so i remember one day i was i was just sitting around thinking how do i give people agency how in a book do you give people agency the same way you might if you were counseling with somebody right they say something and you respond and they make a choice and they you know and, and, and I remember the same thing you did. I remember growing up reading choose-your-own-adventure books and making decisions, you know, and usually I died in horrible ways in those novels, you know. Uh, but but then you'd leave your finger back where you were and you'd flip back and so you'd have, you know, you'd be using all of your fingers as bookmarks. And I just thought, oh, gosh, I wonder, I wonder, A, if I, if I can actually build a theology book that would work. And I wonder if anybody's crazy enough to publish it um and 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 so I worked with um a, a former student of mine Naomi Shamas and we came up with the structure and and then I I talked to Zondervan and they were uh brilliant in not only allowing me to use this format I mean they said we've never published a book that doesn't start with a table of contents like we don't we don't even know how how to do this um, but they also let me set it in this sort of um, landscape, really, a sort of landscape of theology. So it's more of an immersive pilgrim's progress type experience. And even to the point of letting me find a DD and d map maker to kind of sketch it out and, and create a map of this of this area. So, I mean, they they let me just go wild with my sort of creative side. And I am just so grateful to them.
0: Yeah, I think that's super cool that uh, that they allowed you to do that, too, because um, I mean, you covered so much territory within the book and offers, um, you know, such a wide variety of different answers and ways of thinking uh, that also like shout out to Zondervan for that, because there's definitely I think there's definitely answers, answers or, or directions, paths you can choose that probably don't vibe totally uh, with Zondervan's perspectives but zondervan yeah. has also uh yeah so i think that's that's really cool and um actually yeah, and
1: there, there are there are paths that i don't agree with either oh absolutely either. So yeah. <laughs> you know like i don't i don't agree with all of them but this is a, a, a as far as i could do a faithful representation of ways other people have dealt with the problem
0: hmm. yeah and i i really respect that because i remember um Back when I still worked with students, um, so I was a high school and young adult pastor previously to what I do now, uh, which I brew beer now. So talk about a a change. Um, But one thing that I would do with them is try to offer differing perspectives on big questions just because I, I quickly realized that I could give them one answer, right? But Mm -hmm. then they could go to the youth group down the street at the Baptist church and hear a totally different answer from that pastor. uh, Or they could just pull out their phones and Google and have nine different answers in front of them. Mm -hmm. So I thought maybe it was just more honest to say, okay, we're going to talk about hell today. Well, uh, here's you know three or four viable options within the Christian tradition on how people talk about this. Um, yeah. And then maybe be yeah. like, this is what Pastor Mark, you know, the head pastor might say. Uh, this is probably the church's official stance. Here's what I think. Uh, now, like, kind of go figure it out.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, beyond that, when it comes to suffering, there's really different types of suffering. So, like, if I stub my toe or, or cut my finger when I'm, I'm, you know chopping up vegetables that's really different from experiencing abuse or ending up in a war situation right like those quite reasonably need different types of explanation that that might seem logically incompatible with one another if you're just sort of presenting them and so i you know uh, we 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 need to have a, a lot of flexibility in in our explanations and then Add, to add to the complexity of that, you have this idea of where, because of people's experiences, certain models of God may be just uniquely unhelpful, even if they're true, right? So uh, God as father is a really good example of a wonderful biblical depiction of God that many people find really useful, but others find deeply damaging and problematic because of their experience of their own fathers and and so i i you know um for that person god as fortress god as rock may be more more accurate and more true to them even though you're not disputing you know the the truth of 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 what the model of god as father can tell us so you know all all those things need to be held together and so this idea that we can just come up with i've got the answer is, is frustrating to me, even as I'm a relatively conservative Christian (laughs) in these things, you know,
0: it's just not that simple. Yeah. Yeah. That, (laughs) I like that phrase. It's just not that simple. Um, uh, Yeah. And I think that the, the kind of humility that comes forth from like, I don't know, being able to hold oneself like in check theologically that way, I think it's just really important that like, often isn't um it can be like looked over right and i've I've noticed in some of the circles that um i've swam in for a little bit or sometimes this show kind of gets uh lumped in with uh there's like a tendency for more uh progressive people or, or people who have gone through or currently experiencing things like deconstruction um mm-hmm. there's a tendency to almost just flip and become just another kind of fundamentalist just on the other side of the fence so to speak where you're just as exclusive you're just as you know black and white you're just as um you know whatever all the things that you didn't like you've just gone to the other side now and have different answers to the same kind of thing um so I like to try to avoid that (laughs) and and try to bring in humility um at all costs and I get it like People need to have their their own theological journeys and experiences. and um the different, you know, places and stages people kind of go through are all necessary uh, for that journey. So I don't want to disparage any of that, but um just something something I noticed, so the humility, um, yeah, seems important.
1: I mean, on uh, uh, a lot of our culture is based around a search for certainty and for universal answers. And I mean that has deep roots in the Enlightenment, deep roots in our culture being a scientific culture largely, you know. Um, and ironically, that's even breaking down in the sciences where we don't, you know, uh Einstein is great until you get to the quantum world, or you know, that sort of thing. Um, and and so the the explanations uh that we have, we have to we have to approach with humility. We have to approach with, I have only a partial view. And in, in the introduction to the book, I use a sort of visual illusion that was, um, came out in the Victorian period. And a lot of people will have seen this. It looks like a duck or a rabbit, you know, so the the ears either become, uh, the ears can become a beak if you look at it the right way. And and the eye flips around. And so, you know, both people looking at that, describing absolutely opposite things are, are rightly recognizing what they're seeing. And the idea often is to see how can we see that other, that other perspective as well. And, and I, I've just, I found that a really a useful image when I'm thinking about theological models like process theism versus classical theism. They're absolutely irreconcilable If you're you're trying to say, (laughs) you know, is is this a duck or is this a rabbit? But if you can say, well, actually, I I can see the logical consistency in that system just as well as this system and the pastoral benefits and that kind of thing, then I can say, well, God is is probably neither Thomist nor Process, uh, but both of these are witnesses to to God's character and nature in, in ways I can find useful um and then other uh, you know so so people say oh, what are you and i'm like well it kind of depends on the day and i it might be inconsistent but i think i have some philosophical grounding for why i'm seeming inconsistent on that
0: <laughs> yes nice i love it uh that that's a um huh, that's a when i was a, a high school still like teaching students um, I would say that to them often. They'd be like, "Well, what do you like? What do you think? Or where do you blow blah, 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 blah And I'd be like, "Well, it depends on the day and how I'm feeling. I don't know." <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so I, I want to challenge, like, quickly re- challenge any, like, if there's any youth pastors that listen, um, I want them to snag your book and, like, this is what I would do if I was still a youth pastor. I would, like, start a series called "Why Is Their Suffering," and I would want to kind of like start where you do, and then once there's like breakoffs kind of have the students, um, almost like, I don't know if like majority rule would work or something where we kind of go through it with the students and just kind of see where everyone lands up. And maybe, you know, if, if there's a big enough split, then like, you know, we could split the students and like, see where everyone, I don't know, it could get out of hand, I guess, but it sounds fun. (laughs) Uh, Yeah,
1: well, and i've I've done that. I've done that in sermons where I have gone to a certain point and then asked the crowd, "Which way do you want to go?" And then they have, you know, I've done a majority rules thing, and then I've gone, you know, you know, two or three points in a sermon where I've I've offered the congregation a choice for how the sermon should
0: end, and it's (laughs) fun. That's awesome. (laughs) Uh, That's awesome. I love it. Well, for (laughs) man. That's a really good idea. See, if I was still preaching and stuff, I would just have to steal your ideas. i hire you as a consultant. Yeah. You've got to prep
1: for all the different versions and all the rest. You know, it's like, you know, I don't know if you ever watch D&D games online or or play D&D, but, you know, when you're playing D&D and you... uh, you make a choice and you've missed a whole dungeon that the dungeon master has prepared. And they just, you know, take sheets of paper and crumple them up and throw them away, you know? So there, there's that sense of like, Oh, but I had such good stuff if you'd chosen, you know, but it's great.
0: (laughs) Oh yeah. It's like, uh, reminds me when I, so, um, part of my degree is in like graphic design and, uh, our, we had to do like, we would do like logos and, you know, we'd have to start out doing like a hundred sketches and then narrow it down to like 10 and then do 10 variations of each of the, blah, 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 And anyway, we were always told by like, uh, our professor, like don't ever submit something to a client that you don't like, because that for sure is the one they're going to pick. <laughs> so like all yeah. this other good stuff, you're just going to have to throw it out. Uh, so always, yeah. always good, good options. Um, but total aside, again, sporadic uh, Josh brain in the morning. But um, when it comes to suffering, <laughs> I'll bring it, I'll bring us back. Uh, when it comes to suffering, I think a really good place to start, and actually, it's where you you start in your book as well, is just asking this question, what is God like? when we when we think about God, what is it that that comes to mind? And I think for me, at least, that's probably, I guess probably like in my mind, maybe the most one of the most important uh, kind of like doctrines uh, for somebody to hold, because depending on how you answer that question, it will greatly shape all of your theology, your soteriology, eschatology, like all of it together um, based off this. Like, what is God like? Um, And so I don't know. I thought maybe we could start there and see what kind of uh, God we're working with or possibly working with and uh yeah see where it takes yeah. us so yeah. if
1: if i i don't have a copy of my book on me unfortunately but um i i i think i start with sort of three options that god is loving and powerful that god exists but is is not uh is not good um and then that god doesn't exist and so of course if god doesn't exist there's no problem of suffering the world is here by happenstance and the fact that we've evolved uh nervous systems that 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 uh, are harmed by its environment is neither here nor there there's no meaning to it uh if you if you go with the god uh exists, but is either not all powerful or or not all good, then you end up into some interesting theological areas. So uh, Wesley Wildman is probably the best example of somebody who says God exists, but is not particularly good. He calls it ground of being. And he just says, look, God exists, but is not in the caring business. God is just delighted with the emergence of life and creativity, and is cheering on the cancer, just as God is cheering on you and and god is sort of the ground that upholds everything that happens on it but the ground doesn't sort of make decisions about who gets upheld today and who doesn't you know the there are you know the ground is not partial uh to what happens on top of it and so you know he sees god that way uh god is good but not powerful brings you into the open and sort of process theist world where. Whether whether by choice, because God wants responsive relationship with creation, or because of uh, just limitations of of the kind of love that God has, that that, um, love is inherently non-coercive, and therefore God cannot coerce in any way, you you get these places where God cannot stop evil. Um, And uh, I've I've been seriously influenced by that sort of theology, um, and of course I I also move away from it depending on the day, <laughs> depending on the needs in my life, you know. But I I I think uh, particularly something like W. H. Vanstone's love, love's endeavor, love's expense is is a great book that sort of sketches that kind of vulnerable God approach in in a way that's um, I think really profound. And then you have the more traditional theisms of God is loving, God is powerful, and yet suffering, real problematic suffering exists. And so if we go with that, then we can either say, well, God has a plan for everything that's going to happen. So God will work out like this has all happened because something better is in store for each and every instance of suffering. Um or you could say something like, "It's simply mysterious, and we we that that's beyond our ability to understand." Um, my uh, parents' dog, for example, had had bladder stones a couple of weeks ago and had to go in for a surgery. And so the dog went in, had a surgery, and then you know woke up from the sedation with a huge amount of pain and was really uncomfortable for you know as he's been recovering and he he can't understand why that happened he can't understand that bladder stones that would have killed him were taken out and you know all those kind of things all he knows is he's in pain in significant pain that he wasn't in before and can't understand how my parents good intentions could have possibly you know if you love me you wouldn't let me put you know and so it's sort of saying in 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 a similar way uh not to say our intellect is like that of a dog, but um in, in a similar way, we're so limited in our perspective that we simply can't understand God's reasons, even if there are really good ones.
0: Yeah, for um I guess for me, I kind of grew up more in that like last perspective that you gave. Um and then was probably I guess in it's like right after college well i guess in college as well is when i was then like first introduced to uh, like a more reformed reading like a more calvinistic total you know um where everything is is preordained and pre-planned kind of vibe and that one never that one never uh like stuck with me it didn't resonate which I don't know if that's necessarily the best way to do theology is like oh I don't like how this one makes me feel um but uh yeah just with like all honesty that was part of the reason I I um I couldn't do it I I had a really hard time uh just with the idea that um like having to to hold to something crazy like the Holocaust, uh, was preordained and predestined and something like that. Like that just doesn't, didn't seem like the kind of God that I grew up being taught. Um, and I had, you know, friends who went that route because like, you know, when you're in college studying theology, becoming reformed is like the cool bro thing to do. Uh, (laughs) and so, um, I love all my Reformed friends, um, <laughs> but like I I just never was able to go there uh, with them. Um, and I remember, yeah. too, even just in like some really uh, crazy experiences, I know people find it helpful to say like, oh, God is, is totally in control and in charge of this situation right now. Um, but whenever I've experienced suffering in my life or like there was death, that affected me greatly or some kind of great suffering in, in either myself or my family or somebody I, I love, the last thing that I wanted to hear was God is in control. And you know what I mean? Like that seemed not great to me.
1: <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. and so, I mean, it, go ahead.
0: Sorry. Um, oh no, you're good.
1: Yeah, no, I, 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 I totally get that. And I think one of the, one of the things that One of the, again, reasons I wrote the book like I did was that I'm not telling people, but I'm giving people options because with something like God is in control, numerous studies of people going through horrific things. So there's a guy named Jamie Aiton, who um, is is the director of the human, uh, the Institute of Human Disaster, I think, is something along those lines at at, uh, Wheaton College and he basically is a psychologist and he goes into areas like just after Katrina or just after um Sandy just after you know these these massive natural disasters have just decimated people's livelihood and he interviews them about what they think about god and what they find comfort in and a huge amount of them would say i'm i'm just so glad that i know that god is in control and i can surrender to god and everything will be all right and and Jamie talks about how annoyed he was by this, you know, it just was frustrating to him. He's like, no, there are better theological answers and that's a bad one and you shouldn't be comforted with it. Um, and, and then he got cancer and, you know, at one point he, he talks about there was a day where he'd done everything he could, came to the, and he just said, God, I surrender. And had this like like this is all in your hands, and had this immense relief and, and this sense of spiritual peace and da-da-da, you know. And so, and so um it's quite funny how you know he's suddenly going, oh, I saw that in the research, and I really didn't like it because it wasn't theologically sophisticated in a way. Um and yet it it really was what is sustaining. And I think when I was in Bible college and also you know when everybody had good answers um that was when i sort of discovered open theism and i had the same thing i couldn't resonate with the god who who caused these things to happen because i just thought well if, if, if those are god's ways i don't want to have anything to do with that god um the the you know it's monstrous um and and so i i left that behind but i think that at the same time, as I was leaving that theology, I had really good friends who'd been through absolute horror and found those theologies to be sustaining and spiritually nurturing. And it just messed me up, you know, it just was like, <laughs> you know, and then I'd, I'd tell them about open theism, which I'm like, this is so much better. And they'd be like, oh no, oh no, that wouldn't, you know, that wouldn't do. And, and, and so I think this, yeah, this is I'm just long windedly kind of saying that, ag- agreeing with you that we we actually need all, all types of, of theology and, and different things work for different people in different ways. And I, I still do think that there are better and worse approaches generally. So one of the views that I didn't include in the book is uh, suffering exists because God punishes people. For their sin, because I, I not only theologically deeply disagree with that, but all the evidence is that that's pretty much the most damaging view you can hold. Nobody finds it supportive, and (laughs) they're fine if God is punishing their neighbor, but if God is punishing them, it's only detrimental. So I didn't include that in the book. So I'm not sort of complete relativist um, in in that sense, but but I do I do. I do think that what we need is sort of a wide, a wide tent that brings in different people's experience.
0: Yeah, I, from like, uh, you know, the more like pastoral side of me, um, I agree with that so much because I mean, I I had to learn very quickly <laughs> that the things that I find intellectually stimulating and fun are not always the things that people uh, need to hear <laughs> in certain situations. or want to hear. And so I learned, uh, from like a pastoral perspective, it's good and important to be able to, to know and recognize these different ways people speak, and then almost allow somebody to, uh, you know, speak the way that, that they want to speak and then kind of be like, okay, so this, they kind of view things this way. And, um, if you have maybe like a close enough relationship with that person, then you might be able to say, I hear you, I get it, um, you know, kind of play into that perspective, but then maybe also be like, but here's like another way that some people uh, have thought about this, this might be helpful. And if it's not, then it's not. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think just from a pastoral perspective, that's really important. Um, And so I I was thinking too, um, as you were speaking, because I I very much fall within like the open relational process um, kind of space. Uh, But one of the critiques that I I will get from some of my friends um, is like, well, your God is just like weaker or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Or uh, Tom Ward uh, likes to tell the story that uh, he was, you know, having a conversation with one of his uh, theological friends and colleagues. And they said, you know, Tom, your God is just doing his best. And Tom's response was, "Yes, and your God could be doing better, but chooses not to. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, yeah, i I don't know. i I think it's just it's interesting to kind of learn how to think through different things and um when certain theological positions can be helpful or not. Um, yeah. just seems like a, a helpful skill. but yeah, I, I most definitely go down the uh the open relational process uh perspective when it comes to suffering just because that's what I have found most um uh resonates with like personal experience, which matters to me. Um it helps make sense of uh the world and of like what I read and and learn um in science. And you know, I've read a lot about like quantum physics and stuff. And it seems to work nicely with that. So I don't know. Um yeah that's yeah. that's kind of where and so i guess where I the question
1: is like could you also make a reasonable defense of a reformed position
0: yeah i so my friend uh my friend jace um dr jace broadhurst he is uh like a pastor mentor friend of mine um i met him as you know uh, I was at, I was actually studying uh, with a PCA pastor. Um, after I graduated college, we were reading through uh, Michael Horton's Systematic Theology book, and uh, I was having all sorts of questions. And um, he was like, oh, "I don't know how to answer these questions, so you go talk to Jace. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Jace uh, is also is Reformed. He come, you know, he studied Westminster Theological Seminary, um, but he's like a like an Old Testament scholar, so. Um, He had some more uh, biblical, you know, studies kind of ways he could speak about things. Uh, And so I started um, asking him questions and he's been continues to be helpful uh, to this day. I always try to um, get him to read open and relational and process stuff. And sometimes he does. um, But uh, yeah, so having conversations with him is really helpful because I can um, offer something and then Jace. Can push back on it or say like here's your blind spots or did you think about it this way or or well what do you do with the biblical text here then and uh my refrain with jace then is always uh i'm not a bible scholar you are um i'm trying to <laughs> i'm trying to do theology um <laughs> so, oh
1: no um, not divided uh, from the scriptures don't
0: say oh it. <laughs> for sure for sure it yeah very tug in cheek uh and my friend gabe gets so mad at me when i say that too um Gabe is uh <laughs> like Eastern Orthodox kind of dude. Um so yeah, I, I think um I think I could a- articulate uh some kind of uh like well put nice uh non-strawman version <laughs> of like a more reformed perspective to the, the questions of suffering. Um I wouldn't agree with it, but yeah. I think I could do it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, Yeah. it was I mean, probably one of the most interesting parts of the book, writing the book for me was trying to write really persuasive accounts for views that I I don't agree with. And so every time I wrote a position that I don't hold myself, I found somebody who is a strong supporter of that position, had them read it to double check. That I wasn't just making a straw man, and so I mean, some of that was quite fun. Richard Dawkins was kind enough to read the atheist one, you know. I had a few different people read some of the Thomas stuff and some of the, you know, God has a plan, um, and and it it really, you know, you had to sort of be in the right mindset uh, and just say how how can I how can this theology be beautiful? How do people see beauty in it? and and so i tried to sort of capture that and i think it was a really good theological exercise just in uh in in hospitality <laughs> in charity you know especially in a world where more and more everything is about not listening to the other and about proving that i'm right and proving you know um so it's a it's a good it's a good theological um and, and even if you're doing scholarship in, in theological scholarship, I think often people think that their greatest strength is the massive takedown of the person who holds an opposing position, you know. And, and um, I, I remember doing that at one point and then having a reviewer say, Why are you so harsh with this person? I mean, they're like half an inch away from your own position. <laughs> like, why, you know? And I just thought, Oh, Oh right. okay. <laughs> how how can I instead do my my work from an area of of hospitality to the other person's view doesn't mean you're not critical, but sort of hosting, yeah, a spirit a, a spirit of hospitality as as you encounter others and their views
0: mm. yeah, and i I think too, that can like really help foster a deep sense of like ecumenicalism um which i mean you talk about like you know the uh creation justice kind of stuff um i think that's almost necessary to be able to have this deep sense of ecumenicalism if you know if things are going to move forward because <laughs> we have to be able to have conversations with each other uh and respect each other um if we're going to you know move forward with in, in regards to to climate change and such um but i i like it too because something that um mutual friend uh trip uh talks about a lot is um and he offers this advice and i think it's it's the pastor trip side coming out um but for people within like the deconstruction kind of circles uh trip always challenges people to find what is beautiful about their tradition (laughs) and bring that with them and he yeah. just wishes that people could bring, you know, like the people grew up Methodist and, and Southern Baptist and Episcopalian or whatever, could just bring the beautiful things from their tradition that we could celebrate um, these beautiful things. And sure, we can push back against the less than beautiful things <laughs> and maybe ditch them all together if we need to. Um, but I, I really like that image in it. Um, it kind of fits in nicely. I often uh, like to think about the body of, body of Christ as a mosaic and recognize that if uh my theology is just uh straight white cisgender males that graduated from Princeton then that's like that's they're part of the body of Christ it's just one little piece in that mosaic and so i don't want to just ditch that piece completely um, but yeah. rather kind of see the different pieces and, and the roles they play and be able to step back and see the the overall beauty of the whole thing and recognize that even when I disagree strongly <laughs> with uh, like some of my Reformed friends or whatever, they still very much are a part of the body of Christ. Um, This, you know, I had this realization when uh, I was looking at my bookshelves one day and was like, whoa, dude, all this stuff is like white guys. So, where are the female voices? Where are the black voices? Where are the queer voices? You know, um, and just recognizing that you need all of these this it's it's part of the beauty. um so yeah, I think that that kind of yeah. gets fostered with that approach, yeah, <laughs> that's
1: awesome. yeah. I mean, it sometimes it sometimes leads to some interesting internal dialogue for me. so i I generally if I'm forced to have a label, I call myself a charismatic evangelical Anglo-Catholic you know, which seems straightforward to me, but, you know, there's at least, uh, you know, 10, if not three of us in the world today. But um, during lockdown, I didn't know what to do when it came to communion. So I was living alone those first three months in the UK, at least we weren't allowed to see anybody, even if we were single. So I was just alone in my flat and and watching communion. Now, the Anglo-Catholic part of my brain was like, "Well, communion can happen with one person. Priests do it all the time, but you have to be a priest to be able to to consecrate it, right?" Meanwhile, my Pentecostal side was like, "Bah! You don't need to be a priest. That's ridiculous." But it's only where two or three are gathered. You can't be alone, you know. And and so I was kind of ping-ponging between these positions over those months, trying to figure out how in the world to do to do communion. Um, you know, and it it was just it was just quite funny how I I suddenly found myself in in entrenched into two positions, neither of which let me do uh, what I wanted to do in that moment.
0: <laughs> yeah, I remember uh, during lockdown as well with um, uh, communion. I saw perhaps the most creative uh, version of cre- uh, communion that I've seen. Um, well, actually, that's yeah, probably the most creative, but. Uh, it was interesting because what they did was, um, <laughs> this is maybe sacrilegious depending on <laughs> who you are, what uh, theological mind you kind of have, but they had like a pretzel stick and a grape, and they put the the pretzel stick in the grape, and so it was like communion on a stick, kind oh. of. <laughs> so it was, it was both <laughs> elements <laughs> uh, together. That's really um, funny. Yeah, and that I'm pretty sure that was a youth pastor's idea. It sounds like it was. Um but then I had a really beautiful, uh, again, a total aside. But I had a really beautiful communion experience. Um, I was like a keynote speaker for a um, like a high school, uh, uh, what is it called? Like a week, a week retreat kind of thing over the summer in North Carolina, and um, uh, that was a lot of fun. But on the last day, the seniors who were graduating, um, they kind of put together like a worship service type thing. Uh, that was finalized with communion and um, they wanted to have communion be Oreo cookies and oat milk for people who are lactose Mm. intolerant. And so Mm -hmm. they did and they led this service. They used those two items, which is, you know, again, depending on who you talk to, that could be disrespectful. But um, the heart and the motivation and the beauty behind the service was just uh so nice and so powerful and just the i don't know the the elements in that sense might seem weird but it was just this really beautiful experience and then uh two of the students that were seniors um identifies non-binary and so then to have non-binary students lead you in communion with oreo cookies Mm -hmm. and oat milk. Mm-hmm. was just like such a beautiful experience. that just like absolutely wrecked me. Uh, but yeah. That again, total aside, but. Um, hmm, no, I think, I think. That, that, <laughs> yeah.
1: It, yeah. I mean, then there is sort of, there's, there's, um, there's places where the spirit of God moves in, in our creativity and our innovation. And there's also the way the spirit of God moves in, the traditions and in the way that God has continuously been revealed through the whole life of the church, you know, in in the wine and and the bread. And you know, um, and even even if you look at church history, those those traditions have changed over over time as well. And so yeah, I've 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 been at a couple uh improvised communion services as you're uh describing and, and found them rich and powerful. Um uh, yeah, and, and I'm just I'm just sort of playing with this because, you know, I now have also been so deeply impacted by the sort of Anglo-Catholic tradition, where you have very much the same thing every week without there there's deep creativity in the liturgy in, in some ways, but not in the ways that I was used to um, from from more Pentecostal sides. Um and I just find that so valuable too. So again, so <laughs> the, the, the one thing about really charitable is you'll never find a place you fully belong. Cause every, every place you'll be like, Oh, this is wonderful. But I also miss that. Uh, but we, we are pilgrims here.
0: <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I stopped going to church. Um, when I resigned from being a pastor, I, I hadn't been to church in like a year and a half. And just because, I mean, my story is long. It, it it exists in podcast world. It's out there. But, um, it was just a difficult thing for me to do. I couldn't do it. Um, like I was having like affective responses walking into mm-hmm. a church that were just not healthy. And so I finally got to a place um where I was I went. there's an there's a beautiful uh, Episcopal church right down the street from my house. Um uh, I can step outside and see it. It's massive. It looks like a castle in the middle of Baltimore City. Um, and so I started going there and was deeply moved, uh, by the liturgy. Um, and I came from like, you know, more so like non-denominational kind of background. And so being in such like a strict liturgy was something that I used to, uh, at, like look down upon basically like, yeah. Oh, that doesn't count. It's not serious. They're just reading me, you know, things that they didn't even write. Come on. Um, mm-hmm but I just found the liturgy to be so deeply moving and the specifically with the Episcopal tradition. Um, you know, I remember the first time I saw them take the new Testament and, you know, hold it over her head and, and walk down in you know, to the aisle with the congregation and then read from the new Testament, um, was a beautiful experience. And then just the focus on communion, uh, was also really beautiful. And, um, I kind of, was like an outcast not an outcast because the people outcast me i placed myself in this position i sat in the back by myself um and this church is very old the congregation is very old um there's maybe 20 of them and just to watch these people engage in this like beautiful and sincere uh liturgy you know week after week there was just something to that that like grew a deep appreciation uh for so I yeah I, I thought it was interesting um yeah yeah
1: and it's interesting you're you're talking about this sort of effective response you had going into church and so I was just sort of thinking the one caveat that I'd put to to trips uh you know take what's beautiful in your tradition is is you know don't don't feel the need to force yourself to do that right right away <laughs> if if you need some time Give, give it some time, but that do, do revisit um, eventually. And I think when it comes to suffering and all the sort of things we've been discussing, that, that time element is also one that I want to learn more about because there are books that people find really, really, really helpful before they've had an encounter with suffering and it sort of prepares them in important ways. But that same book, given Immediately after uh you know, or in the midst of an instance, of suffering might be entirely the wrong thing. Um and so that that's another thing that i I really want to learn more about is about what sort of what sort of interventions are most helpful, uh, given the sort of type of suffering and the and the time uh, that has elapsed between the moment of suffering and and how we're now reflecting on it, trying to make meaning out of what's happened.
0: Hmm. Yeah. That would be really interesting. Um, yeah. And I think your, your point is well taken because I I mean, for me, like I definitely went through like the, what I'd call like a cage stage deconstruction type vibe where like, I was just like, you know, fuck everything. And then I would tell everybody that and why. And, um, and yeah. And so it took, and like when I, when I finally ended up leaving the church, it, it had more to do less with, um, the deconstruction theological issues. Cause I, the last church I worked in was fantastic. I had space where I could ask those kind of questions and um, wrestle through those things. And it was, it was cool. Mine more so came from um, experiences of abuse um, at the hands of former bosses. Um, and so like, that's just like the trauma aspect was there and like the damage was already done, so to speak. And I just felt it wasn't healthy for me to continue to be, um, in the space for myself, but also for the other people on staff. And more importantly, or I don't know if it's more important, but also for the people that, you know, were in my care, so to speak. Um, I didn't want to push my, you know, trauma and experience onto them uh, because that could be spiritually harmful and abusive and I don't want to perpetuate it. Um, But so like, it took me time to go back to, that episode, I mean a year and a half, I did not go to church <laughs> and uh just to like you know roll in one day, um, which was like a very scary experience still. Like I remember walking in and like I was shaking <laughs> when I went, you know, went to go sit down. Um, but at the same time, that you know, experience brought a lot of healing. Uh, but with um, I guess I wanted to ask you with suffering, um, because oftentimes when I've you know done suffering before on the show, we talk a lot about like people suffering. And, you know, bad stuff happening and someone getting like a diagnosis, that's not great. Or, you know, like genocide, things like that. But um, what I haven't really done much with is uh, suffering within like, I don't want to separate natural world from Unhuman. humans, but like, you know what I mean? <laughs> Unhuman suffering. The, the,
1: non, the non-human animal world. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, so um, I think that's a real problem. So can you kind of maybe like motivate that? problem and then yeah just talk about different ways that we can look at that
1: yeah so uh i mean the 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 two biggest answers that people generally give in literature to why god allows suffering is something like well it all went wrong with moral free will you know people make the wrong decisions they reject god and therefore they're suffering and for most theologians animals don't sin. And we have good evidence that they were suffering long before humans were around to mess it up. So that's that's a big problem. Uh, why, how could there be suffering? How could there be death before the advent of human sin in the world? Uh, because then their suffering isn't a result of sort of God's punishment on sin, but seems to be for some other reason. The second big answer that that theologians give to why they're suffering is that it gives. You know, suffering is harmful, but it gives the opportunity for the person to draw closer to God. So it's sometimes called the soul making argument. But once again, it doesn't seem that, that, you know, your cat or your dog have that kind of ability to sort of choose to overcome their suffering by drawing near to God. And so neither of those give a very good explanation. So we need to start broadening sort of how do we. Um, account for this. And so one, one way would be by uh, the extension of sort of a free will type argument, but into something that's more amenable to the animal world. So you could talk about free process as John Polkinghorn does, where you're saying that uh, God has given freedom to the natural world uh, to develop along its own lines and its own methods of survival, and that that leads to things like, uh, to, you know, predation and parasitism and the sorts of things that cause pain. And actually, if you take it one step further, you can actually say even the development of suffering is, is a result of creatures' actions, right? So, uh Early early life in the in the earth, um for billions of years, had very happy life. cyanobacteria wandering around the ocean, swapping DNA, munching, you know sunshine. Uh, the, there was no predation. there was no suffering. Um, and it's really only with the emergence of the, you know, Cambridge Cambrian explosion some five hundred and forty million years ago. And, and the sort of animal body plants today, that we see the emergence of the capacity to suffer. Um, and even if you look at the world today, you know, about 0.1% of life on Earth has the possibility of suffering that we can recognize, you know, because most life on Earth is plant, bacteria, archaea. You know, are 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 not the types of organisms who suffer. So suffering is actually a very very small problem in the scope of life, uh, but very important to those who do. So you can you can say, well, this is actually a. a, a div- developmental process that has come about through creatures' own um, agency and, 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 you know, they've always had it. You could do a greater good argument, sort of say, the reason these complex nervous systems developed was because the creatures that had them survived better. So if we take people's ability to suffer away, they don't live better lives. They actually slowly destroy themselves because what suffering does is it, it teaches us to protect ourselves. We pull away from things that hurt and, and preserve the integrity of our bodies in a harmful environment. So you can do it, you can do it that way. Um, a few theologians, uh, Celia Dean Drummond, David Clough, will start to say, actually, I think we can extend sin into the animal world. And so resurrect a, 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 a more traditional free will argument. And and say things like cannibalism amongst chimpanzees is actually sinful even for them. Uh, and, and so these unique forms of suffering of, of a mother watching a rival eat her baby really shouldn't be happening in the world. This is this is a contravention to God's will and the chimpanzees, <laughs> you know, realize they're doing something wrong. Uh, and so there, there's quite a few different ways you could you could approach it. Um, one, one last way I'll, I'll mention is, is that part of the explanation also comes down to that question, of the nature of God, what is the nature of love? And so if the nature of love is to, uh, prevent all suffering, then, then God has failed. But if the nature of love is to allow the other to be the other, then it's precisely God's love that creates the possibility of the arising of 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 suffering and creature harming creature, etc.
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um because I guess if you take that first perspective you offered in um I guess too even the the last bit there, um they could play nicely together and it kind of gets to a place where it's like uh, you know, if you assume that like God, you know, started uh, well, creation, created creation, whatever. Um, and at first, as you were saying, like you know, the little singular cell organisms swimming around and doing stuff. Uh, there was no suffering then. Um, but it's kind of like a a property that just kind of arises out of um the process of evolution as cha- things shift and change. So then, like God's not necessarily the author of suffering within that perspective but like mm-hmm. uh suffering just almost becomes like almost like an i don't know if necessary is the right word but almost like a necessary aspect to um like creation like just how it works yeah uh yeah which is yeah. Interesting. If, you're, yeah. if you're
1: going yeah. So Chris Southgate has called it the only way argument that if, if you're going to have mobile creatures in in a in a world that harms them, something like pain is necessary. So, you know, to pull away, uh, you know, or, or know what to avoid. And Paul Brand um, co-authored a book with Philip Yancey called The Gift of Pain, which uh, goes through the same thing. And it actually looks at leprosy, which is... Um, uh, well, Hampton's disease is is what it is, but it's what people traditionally called leprosy, which people thought of as sort of a, a flesh eating disease. And what Paul Brown realized was it actually was nothing of the kind. What it was was a bacterial infection of the pain nerves, and it killed the pain nerves, and all the subsequent damage came from people not feeling pain. And so, you know, one one African clinic, they had rats coming in the middle of the night chewing off patient's fingers while they were sleeping and they they didn't wake up they didn't they didn't know to pull away you know and so they'd wake up with these huge lesions on their hands and nobody could figure out where they were coming from you know because you know it 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 was just inconceivable to them that 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 would be what was happening so there there are really important biological reasons uh for why suffering why feeling pain is important, both biologically like that, but also when we think of social pain, you know, the, the, one of the most painful things people can go through is, is the suffering of rejection. And yet it's precisely that, that leads us to be such great social bonders um, and, and allow us to work together and, and develop uh, many of the, of the, um, sort of deep joys, the deep uh, bonding relationships of love and, and so on. And so, you know, we, we, have, we have this thing that seems to be a trade-off. And it's interesting because after reading Paul Brand's book, I reread the story of Jesus healing people who had leprosy. And of course, in the New Testament, that meant almost any kind of skin disease. But if any of them actually had Hansen's disease, Jesus was healing them by giving their pain back to them by healing their pain nerves. Um, and so so I think in it looked at from that perspective, animal pain in general is not a problem, even if we might fight with some of the really unpleasant results of it on the individual level uh, and i'm I'm there are quite a few theologians uh, who disagree with me. And so what they would then say is actually there's still fallenness that happened in the world before humans. There are some who would attribute that to, to animal sin. I talked about those, but there are also those who would just say, you know what? Satan has had uh, his hand in evolution since the beginning. And uh, that, that development of of that it has to be pain or, or a lack of flourishing in the way that I've tried to pull that tension, they said, God never intended that. <laughs> that, that, that very tension was something introduced by, by whether it's demonic forces or whether it's some mysterious fallen aspect of the cosmos. Um, yeah, so there's a, there's a major sort of dividing fault line in the theologians who deal with this on that point.
0: Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And it it kind of makes me like something that comes to mind then is I think about uh like what something like that does, um, either to or with uh like an eschatological vision or hope, mm-hmm. like what how does that impact our eschatology? Um, you know, because if you talk about um I don't know, you know, the the often quoted, you know, bits out of a revelation when they're talking about, you know, like every tear will be wiped away, that kind of thing. Um, no more pain and suffering. So, if we, and I think as most people, when they envision some kind of uh, like heaven, and I don't know what I think about this, so I'm just trying to put something out there. Um, but when people envision something like heaven, you know, it's it's perfect, there's no pain, there's no suffering. Um, so like. I don't know. There, there seems to be some kind of interaction possibly that could be happening there. Um, is like this eschatological particular kind of eschatological vision. Is it something that's like, so contrary to how the natural world is set up that it like, doesn't make sense? Like, there, I don't know. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, no, there's really absolutely, there, or... there's a the whole
1: literature <laughs> on this, actually. So oh, cool. Okay. You're not, you're not far off. So so the, the de- debate is sort of between, so you've got Isaiah 11, you know, the lion shall lay down with the lamb, and, you know, the eschatological vision 65, but you also have, I think it's Isaiah 37, where it sort of says... On my holy mountain, there will be no lion or any ravenous beast. You know, there will be there will be none of these. And so you have these contrasting images biblically about whether animals are included or they're not, or what their nature will be. And it's it's led to this question of well, what would animal heaven look like? Um, and some so somebody like Jay McDaniel will say uh, if there is a pelican heaven. It will be heaven to pelicans and not for humans, like those two probably don't go together. And so he imagines a pelican heaven where a pelican who uh, died in its infancy because it was the second born and gets pushed out of the nest, that it will have a chance to grow up, enjoy the fullness of being itself and, and being part of its species, and then he actually says, and, and then maybe it could it could die, like maybe, you know, there's no reason that immortality is necessarily good to a pelican. For uh, the interaction between animals, there's a division between someone like David Clough, who's like, of course, it has to be peaceable. You know the the lion will not eat lambs in heaven, or this is not heaven. There's just no way that they could keep those instincts and keep that. Uh, whereas Christopher Southgate is kind of like, well, a straw eating lion isn't really a lion anymore. Like we've we've lost something essential about what it means to be a lion. So he uh, draws on a poem by James Dickey and sort of says, um, I. Uh, that 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 describes hunting in heaven where you know the lion goes after the gazelle and takes the gazelle down but the gazelle is not afraid feels no pain and after falling is able to rise again and run again and so you have this su- sustaining of the relationship that they held here but without the tears without the pain without the loss I've sort of taken both of those and combined them by saying, well, maybe you can preserve the instinct without preserving the hunting. And and the analogy I use is to human sport. Not many people in the world hunt today, whereas in the human past, most everyone would have hunted in some way. But what we've done is we've taken those abilities, our, you know, drive... And we've turned them into gymnastics, (laughs) you know, and in some ways I like that, because if you want to see the limits of what the human body can do, don't like forget Achilles. Look at Simone Biles. I mean, the things that that woman can do are absolutely beyond the pale when compared to any historical warrior you want to name. And so there's a sense of, of, of transcending the limits of what the human is doing Um, and, and I'd like to pull pull that over, you know, so I don't know about lion tennis or anything, but the idea is that those, those instincts can be preserved, but, but move towards a nonviolent end. Um, and that's part of how I've done. I also, I also sort of, um, I tend to be all inclusive in biology when it comes to animal heaven because i think you know not only pelicans but uh bacteria too because i think that the question that drives you know what is saved is what does god love and and i i do think that god loves each and every bacteria even though they divide every 20 minutes and you know so on and so forth there's a whole lot of them i don't i don't think we'll be facing a lack of space
0: yeah no i like it. it's helpful it's uh I don't know. It's just, it's like a fun question to think through too, because then, you know, I, uh, sit down and I start thinking about how, um, you know, like without suffering, um, like, and there's nothing to compare, like almost the yin and yang kind of vibe to it. Like without suffering, do we really like, can we have a full understanding of like the opposite of that? So if there is no more suffering, is like everything's just great all the time? Does it just become blah because it's just the same? Um, You know, or like I was talking to uh, Aaron Simmons recently, I was on the show, and he's like a phenomenological philosopher, uh, Kierkegaard scholar kind of guy. And one of the things he was talking about is like, does the idea of like the extension of uh, life forever, like immortality, basically, does that... um, Does that like basically make everything irrelevant because if everybody could live all the time, then everybody could do all of the things and then nothing – nothing it just all becomes relative. It doesn't matter all the time because all the the things uh, everybody could do. So like if I had all the time in the world forever, I could learn Mozart and just crush it, you know, Uh, and then that would relativize – the beauty of like going to an, I don't know, like an orchestra house now and hearing them play Mozart to a a spot where it's like so beautiful and moving that it like brings tears to your eyes. So like there's, I don't know, there's all these like weird philosophical questions that kind of like get lumped up into all of this that um, I'm sure we're not going to solve today. But (laughs) I just wanted to throw that out and see if you had any kind of like...
1: Yeah. Well, so um my mind immediately went to the good place. I don't I don't know if you've if you've seen that. Can I can I do a spoiler here for Yes. <laughs> I would say so, yes.
0: <laughs> spoiler so, warning. <laughs> spoiler
1: alert if you're going to watch it uh, fast forward the next little bit. But that's exactly what happens. They get to heaven and everyone is bored out of their mind and has, you know, because they've all done everything and they've run out of they've run out of new things. And everyone just becomes, I think, what they call a pleasure zombie, um, and so they solve this by basically letting letting people end their own existence. So the the idea of finality finitude becomes the grace to them. I just think that that lacks imagination. I <laughs> I think the 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 creativity of God is so much greater that there will be no no end to two things. And I I don't see um, eternity as timeless or as um, as static. I think that there's the continuing ability to learn, to love, to, you know. And so I I in a way, I often do return to CS Lewis and the further up and higher end that there's just this this there's just ever more depths of further up and higher end for us to to go to um but uh that that is my hope not my certain knowledge
0: (laughs) yeah i i think it's i mean i think it's a good hope and it it, i mean if like from a a process like a more processy type perspective um that makes total sense right as as god um this like creative generative uh force principle whatever you want to call it um constantly uh seeking and empowering us to have you know, new creativity and new novel ideas and concepts. And if God is continuously doing that always, then of course, like, I don't know. I like that language. So that's cool. Yeah. A good, uh, I don't know. It's a good hope.
1: (laughs) It's it's a hope. It's a hope.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Ah, cool. Well, excuse me. Sorry about that. Um. Uh that made me lose my train of thought. Dang it. Um I don't know. Here we are. Yeah, you okay. Yeah, here we are. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, I don't know. I guess uh this uh you know for me a conversation has been a lot of fun. Um I the animal suffering bit is just really um interesting to me, especially now that like I don't know, I've been thinking a lot more about like eco-theology type stuff and reading some uh, cool process, you know, processing people about like ecological civilization and things like this. Um, and addressing animal suffering isn't something that I've really done. Um, I've thought about it, especially because like I said, my wife is in um, animal welfare. And so yeah. uh, it's like a really important thing. So um, thank it's, you for. It's, me- it's, yeah.
1: yeah, no, I, I'm just riffing off of that. It's sort of what we, what we aim for. In animal welfare, actually ties in really closely to these questions: where does animal suffering come from? Um, so, when when I was doing my PhD, I had a, a point where I I had a chance to talk to Jurgen Moltmann, you know, and I was just absolutely overwhelmed. So I decided I'll ask him the question that forms my PhD because you know it's Jurgen Moltmann and I have one chance. So I, I I sort of start and I say, okay, why why do you think God allows? Um, animals to suffer? What? What is the origin of that? He looks at me, he says, it's completely the wrong question. <laughs> and i thought, no! And he said, you know, the origin of suffering doesn't matter at all. The only question is, how do you respond to it? Um, but, uh, you know, I went away relatively crushed. But, 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 but as I thought about it, I thought, no, it does matter. Because if you think that all suffering is a result of fallenness or demonic intervention or, uh, creatures making the wrong choice, then it is our moral duty to try and prevent all of it. We should be trying to teach lions not to eat gazelles and we should be trying to teach the smallpox virus, not to, you know, whatever. Um, we should be trying to teach, Spiders not to eat flies, right? All the way down, it would be our job to prevent those things and give them alternatives that are not violent. But if you take the kind of view that I do, that there's a certain amount of suffering that is part of God's good and and groaning creation, then those are not what we're trying to do, you know. And that has implications for rewilding that has implications for a lot of the questions that we're we're asking right now about we have reshaped the world so we're going to have to reshape it again how do we do that and i i think that uh quite often we have we have listened to a particularly western voice a technological voice that says all suffering is bad and ought to be avoided at all costs and i really question that <laughs> Um, and, and so I think, I think that it, it is, it is, you know, there, there is a surprising amount of, uh, applicability to what can seem like a relatively obscure theological question.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think there's very much, um, you know, applicability, um, and it's important too. And I think it, at least for me, it comes down to like, and you kind of started about uh, talking this way with the the rabbit and the duck thing. It's like mm-hmm. all, a, it's like a paradigm. Like every, uh, Greg, my co-host, who's, you know, taking a break right now, um, likes to say everything is paradigm. And so if we have this, like, depending on our paradigm, this question is either ridiculous or it's super duper important. And so if you're, uh, yeah, I guess depending on what paradigm you're coming from, Uh, Which for me, um, you know, coming from like this more process perspective, trying to learn from uh, the different like ecosystems that already exist within nature, and like trying to learn how the Earth is already doing the Earth's thing, and how I can participate with the Earth in a way that is good for um, not just humans but the overall you know well-being of all of it. Like this question is insanely important. Um, It's not just this, you know uh Paradigm that's like deeply anthropocentric and you know how can we just exploit the environment to get you know the best things for us humans we're the ones that matter uh, if that's your Paradigm then maybe a question like this is like I don't care but yeah. if it's not um then it's huge and I think it if uh to tie it back to the beginning if you ask the question what is God like uh depending on what kind of God you um you find yourself uh believing in it's again it's paradigm it's going to this is either really important or yeah but um I would like to think that is deeply important. <laughs> and so yeah. Uh, yeah yeah me too. <laughs> I, yeah I appreciate I appreciate the work that uh you're doing on it. Um I'm really excited. I really want to talk to you more about um some of like the ecological kind of work that you've been you know doing as well. And hopefully I didn't, I wrote down not to scare you. So hopefully I didn't do that. Um, <laughs> so we can talk again. I'm
1: good. Again. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> great.
0: Uh, good deal Hey, well, thanks that. so
1: much for having me on. This has been a great conversation. Really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, thanks. Um, uh, thank you so much. And I'll be sure to put um, a link to your book, Why Is There Suffering in the show notes uh, for people. Is there anywhere else you would like me to link them to?
1: Uh if it, the the one thing that i would encourage people to do is to buy it if you can from a local bookstore so i think rather than if you can instead of putting on the amazon link put on uh there are book searches that help you find it in local bookstores and that would be that would be amazing if you could link to that instead of to amazon
0: yeah sounds good Not amazon link write support, it down support Boom. your local bookshop yes <laughs> yeah there actually there's a uh, a new one that just opened up right down the road next to this uh coffee shop local coffee shop that my wife and i like to go to i'm like dang it you guys are just uh you know supporting my already unhealthy habit of overflowing yeah. bookshelves <laughs> yeah. so but yeah i appreciate it <laughs> <laughs> welcome all right <laughs> cool bethany take care and uh, listeners as always thanks for hanging out with us today and uh go in peace guys